All right. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. It's good to be able to come and bring the word to, to you all. Paul McCartney, or should I say Sir Paul McCartney, has been doing the rounds recently on the news. He's been touring a fair bit. Paul McCartney was the author or the, the writer of the song Let It Be, one of the Beatles' most famous of songs. And how did it go? When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom. What are those words of wisdom? Let it be, let it be. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't find that solution to be a very satisfying one to me. In times of trouble, I need more than just let it be. What about you? What do you do when there's times of trouble? Where do you go in times of sorrow, times of despair? This morning's psalm, I think, is going to help us in some small measure, I think, to navigate through some of those times, some of those troubles that we find ourselves in. And as we continue through the book of Psalms, so far we have seen how Psalms 3 to 5 have really been songs of sadness. They're not the sort of songs that we would find on the top Christian 100 playlist. They're sad songs. We'd rather have songs probably that make us more feel better, more uplifting. The problem is, though, that we simply don't live under sunshine and blue skies all the time. There are times when dark clouds will intrude in our lives. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, Praying the Psalms, developed a way of categorising the psalms and he called psalms of lament, psalms of disorientation. Disorientation, I think, is such an appropriate word. It means a, a feeling of being confused about where you are, about where you are going or what is happening. If something disorientates you, you lose your sense of direction or you feel lost you feel uncertain. And that's exactly what we see in the Psalms of Lament. These Psalms resonate with the human experience of suffering and serve as a reminder that it's appropriate to bring our pain, to bring our struggles before God in prayer. Psalms of Lament provide a, a voice for those that are facing adversity. It offers solace to us. It's an example about how to turn to God in times of trouble. They reflect the lament of our honest struggle offered to the loving and gracious God of the Bible. They are songs of suffering. They are prayers of pain. And yet, in spite of the world's brokenness and the difficulties that we face, we can have confidence in a God who rescues 
and redeems us. And this morning, as we go through Psalm 6, we'll try and seek to understand how it can guide us through our own times of suffering and despair. We'll discover that even in these darkest of times, there is a wellspring of hope. There is a presence of mercy there from our Heavenly Father. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me into Psalm 6. Psalm 6. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, For my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning, and every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea, The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you that we can come to your word so freely. Lord, we praise you for it. Let it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path this morning. May you illumine your word to our hearts and our minds. May it help us to grow more and more into the image of your dear Son. And it is in Jesus' wonderful name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Well, our psalm begins with that superscription, that little fine bit of writing above the actual main text itself. And it says, To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. And that word Sheminith, it may refer to an eight-string harp. It might just be a type of musical direction, a way to sing the psalm. Maybe it's a possible reference to some other way of how to sing that song. The text itself, it really doesn't give us any background to the context of why this psalm was written. And that at times can be frustrating. We want to know why these things were written. But in another way, it's kind of neat because 
when there is nothing there, then it doesn't colour it. We can claim this song as our own. We can be free to join in with all those in the past that have sung this song as their own song. So far in the Psalms of Lament that we've studied, all of David's troubles that he's had seems to have been caused by some external or some outside influence, whether it be Absalom's or some other things that are going on. But here in this psalm, the problem doesn't appear to be an external one, rather it's an internal one. As I mentioned, we just don't know the context, but many would suggest that the, what David is suffering is due to some unconfessed sin. This psalm has often been described as one of the penitential psalms, one of the seven penitential psalms. So Psalm 6, Psalm 32, 38, 51, 102, 130 and 143. But in this psalm, we... We really don't see any of the language that we would expect to find in any of the penitential psalms. Penitential psalms are confessional in their tone. They have a confession of sin and a a seeking of forgiveness. Think of Psalm 32 verse 1 that says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In verse 5 it says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 51 verse 3 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. But we don't see any sign of David confessing or acknowledging any sin in our psalm. The reality, I guess, is that ever since the fall, all suffering, all sorrow, all the pain, all the problems, all the troubles and the traumas that we face are a result of sin. So yes, David would be aware of his sin, probably more than most people, but we just can't say what it is in this psalm. Others might suggest that the cause for David's suffering is due to some sickness or illness. Others say that he's distraught because of his enemies. But to say which one of these situations would be just reading too much, I think, into the text. All we can say is this. David is a broken man living in a broken world. And he, like all of us, have feet of clay. So the first thing I want us to see is David's despair. Uh, In the opening verse of Psalm 6, we witness King David at his most vulnerable. He cries out to God, not in anger, not in rebellion, but with a heart heavy, a heart with distress, a soul burdened by circumstances. So he cries out for mercy. It's an expression of his deep need and deep dependence on God's compassion. And note his His cry for mercy is not a casual one. This is not perfunctory, but it's a heartfelt outpouring of his soul. He is in anguish. 
So we read in verse 1, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. This verse begins with a, a plea to the Lord. And I'll keep making the point that prayer was David's first response, not his last resort. So David begins by addressing God. And see how David doesn't just call him Lord. He says, oh Lord. That interjection there is there to express deep and profound pain. It's not just a rote prayer. This is rather a plea from the depths of despair. So David cuts to the chase. He pleads with God. He says, rebuke me, not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Whatever he's going through, whatever the situation, he sees the Lord's hand in it. It's a hand of discipline. And David's concern is the manner in which he feels God is trying to correct him. David does not want to experience God's wrath or anger, and nor should anyone. David didn't want to experience God's displeasure. And so David, in verse 2, he asks the same thing again. He's just rephrasing it, in a, putting it in a positive way. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. Why? For I am languishing. And here we see David pleading to the God he knows. He knows God's righteous character. And instead of seeking immunity from judgment, the psalmist is rather seeking the Lord to temper his dealings with him. So David makes a plea for clemency. He wants God to listen to him and hear his pain and show him favour and mercy. And it's not that he didn't expect God to correct him. He knew the Lord's discipline was good and right. David was a man after God's own heart because he was a man that was used to God's hand. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 11, we read this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all who have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. 
but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I think David was wise enough to appreciate God's hand of correction in his life. But I think in this instance, David is just simply struggling. And there's an important point I think we need to remember is this. God does not punish his children. Punishment is suffering, pain or loss that serves as retribution for committing an offence. Retribution has the sense of vengeance, a sense of getting even. Punishment is something negative and often painful that a person earns by committing an offence. So God's discipline in our life is not punishment. Jesus bore our punishment on the cross. No, God's discipline is that of a loving father. So David continues, he says, Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. And it's this verse that some people believe that David was suffering due to a sickness that he had. In fact, scientists have discovered that there's a direct link between stress and inflammation. Our body, when it starts getting stressed out, it releases all these hormones and our body goes into a fight or flight mode. And all those molecules start to inflame us and cause pain. Was that the reason why David was suffering? We don't know. But he goes on, he says, My soul also is greatly troubled. And I think the only thing worse than bodily pain is to experience spiritual pain. David's soul is not just troubled, it's greatly troubled. And this emphasis underscores the profound, I think, and overwhelming nature of his distress. So David is trying to say here that he is just wiped out. Again, it's hard to know whether these expressions are literal and physical or just more figurative. But we can see that his whole person is troubled. Not just troubled, but it's inwardly trembling, it's agitated, it's anxious. And if we could condense these verses down to its shortest thing, it would be this be like David is saying, I'm hurting. Please stop. And then David starts another sentence. He says, and you, Lord. And then it's like he just stops. He becomes so overwhelmed with grief that he just cries out, how long? This short but poignant phrase conveys David's sense of urgency and his longing for relief. How long? How long? That phrase occurs 130 times in the Bible. The phrase that starts off the book of Habakkuk that Andrew's starting to take us through. Why is this cry so common? 
because it's a question that echoes the hearts of many who find themselves in prolonged seasons of distress. How long? How long, O Lord, will I endure this suffering? How long until I see your deliverance? David's question of how long, it's one that many of us have asked during times of suffering and uncertainty. It's a question that often remains unanswered for a long time. But it also reflects our longing for God's intervention and our trust that he will act in his perfect timing. In verse 3, we witness David's raw honesty. He doesn't hide the intensity of his turmoil. Instead, he lays it bare before the Lord. And this kind of transparency, it's a model for us in our relationship with God. In our moments of deepest despair, we can approach God with the same honesty, expressing the true condition of our souls. So we then see David pleading for deliverance. In verse 4, we not only get to the heart of the matter, but we also get to the solution. Verse 4, it says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And David's plea for God to turn think is really the heart of the issue. David thought that God had forgotten him. That God had turned away, that he no longer cared. David felt the absence of God. So he cries to the God he loves, turn, turn back. I'm not sure if you've heard of the condition called Seasonal Affective Disorder, often abbreviated as SAD. It's a type of depression that comes and goes in a seasonal pattern. Other people call it the winter blues or the winter depression because the symptoms are usually more apparent and severe in winter due to the lack of sunlight. But don't we have more reason to be sad when the face of our Heavenly Father isn't shining upon us. When we don't feel the warmth of his love like we used to. When dark clouds seem to obscure any light. Lamentations 3.44 says this, You have wrapped yourself in a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. And it's at these times that we must cry out to God, Turn, O Lord. And so David makes his appeal, or really his petition, to the Lord to rescue him. He cries to God to deliver my life, save me. David believes that God is the ultimate source of his salvation. And he realises that it's only God who has the ability to bring about a change in his life and in his circumstances. This really is a pointer or a, a prelude to what Christ would do for us 
to save us from our biggest problem, that of sin. So what's the basis for David's appeal? It's there in our text. For the sake of your steadfast love. This plea is not based on any merit that David claims for himself. Instead, it's entirely rooted in God's steadfast love. He realises that the covenant-keeping Lord loves his people regardless of their sins or their circumstances. So David makes his appeal based on this covenant love. It's that word hesed that we looked at in Psalm 5. It means a devoted love, a love that never lets go of us. And this steadfast love, this steadfast love is the same love that we experience too. And in our own times of need, we can depend on God's love as the foundation of our hope and our salvation. And through the highs and through the lows, God's love will never fail us. So David continues his partition. He continues to reason in verse 5. He says, For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Do you see what's happening here? David's mindset is changing. He isn't now thinking about himself so much. Now he's thinking about God. Remembrance isn't just the recollection of something. It's not just like, oh yeah, now I remember where I left my keys. In Hebrew, remembrance has more to do with the recounting of God's great deeds in an act of worship. And this is why remembrance then is paralleled by praise. The theme of David's life was a sincere desire to praise his God. Sheol was the abode or the place of the dead. And from David's perspective, he's thinking that if he dies, whether from health or sickness, whether it's from his enemies, then death will silence his worship. And he'll no longer be able to praise the God that he loves. See, isn't that great that even through the midst of his grief, even through the midst of his grief, he still has concern for God's glory. And he wants the Lord to deliver him, keep him alive so he can reflect on God's character and goodness and praise him for both and to declare it to others. And yet, Despite all of that, it seems that things get too much for David. And so in verses 6 to 7, we see him succumb to the weariness of suffering. Which is our third point. In these verses, we encounter a, a vivid portrayal of David's deep distress. It's marked by weeping marked by groaning. And this emotional expression in the psalm provides insights into the human experience, into suffering and supplication. And the Bible makes no effort to try and gloss over these feelings. They're not varnished over, they're not removed. 
They're not rushed over. This isn't just some little side note put over there. They're there for us to resonate with during our own times of pain. David says in verse 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. It's so interesting that in the other Psalms of Lament that we're seeing, David could sleep so easily. When external threats were coming at him, severe threats, David could get to sleep so easily. Now, the inner voices, his thoughts, his doubts, his fears prove too much for him. And we, we get it. We understand that this is hyperbole. This is exaggerated language. We understand that his bed and his couch didn't get flooded with tears. But David is describing the acute pain he's feeling. This is a man on the edge. And it's the case, isn't it? So often the case at night time, during the darkness, during the silence, that long watch, that the grief and sorrow can become overwhelming. So does David need to tell this to God? No. No. David said in Psalm 56 verse 8, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? David's psalm gives us permission to grieve openly and authentically. Teaches us that it's okay to express our pain, our sorrow and our frustrations before God. Moments of despair, we don't have to hold back our tears or our emotions. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Peaches, often suffered from bouts of depression himself. But he says this, Weeping is the eloquence of sorrow. It is a wordless orator, needing no interpreter, but understood by all. Is it not sweet to believe that our tears are understood by God, even when words fail? Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers and of weeping as a constant dropping of importunate or persistent intercession, which will surely trickle its way into the very heart of divine mercy. Liquid prayers. Isn't that a wonderful expression? Hebrews, the writer in Hebrews in chapter 5, verses 7 to 8 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
Isn't that a comfort to know that during times of sorrow that we have a sympathetic high priest, one who is well acquainted with tears. During times when you feel that no one cares or hears your cries of despair and pain, take heart. You're not alone. David experienced despair, but he knew that God was by his side. And God listens to your pleas and he sees your tears. How do we know that? It's in our next verses. It's there where we see the assurance of God's response. David continues in verse 8. He says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. And the Lord accepts my prayer. How do we account for David's sudden change in mood? One moment he's on the verge of depression. Now we see him with such bold confidence. It's right there, isn't it? For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. David's transformation here reflects the deep assurance he has in God hearing and responding to him. David's distress has given way to unwavering confidence that God is actively involved in his situation and working on his behalf. David said, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Those liquid prayers God has heard and he hears yours too. David said, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord heard David's petition and he hears your cries also. David said, the Lord accepts my prayer. David was confident that the Lord had accepted his prayer. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you can have that same confidence that when you pray according to his will, he will hear your prayers also. Dale Ralph Davis, commenting on these verses, said that prayer doesn't change things, but prayer lays hold of God who changes things and who in prayer changes you. We can trust that even in moments of profound despair, God is at work and how prayers our prayers have the power to shift our perspective from distress to confidence. And this transformation reminds us that our faith, the faith that we have, it's not static, it is dynamic. And that in God there is always hope for a brighter tomorrow. Finally, David finishes, he says, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. We don't know who these enemies were. 
Maybe this was a throwback to Absalom. We just don't know. What we can see, though, this victory, this deliverance, it's still in the future. But it will be comprehensive. He says, all my enemies. And this victory will be swift and it will be sudden. It's interesting to note that at the start of the psalm, it was, was David who was greatly troubled. And in the end, turns to be David's enemies who will be greatly troubled. I think we can take some comfort in knowing that our greatest enemy, sin, has been defeated at the cross. And since God has taken care of our greatest enemy through Christ, we will also have victory over the world, the flesh and the devil. Jesus promised, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, after listing all the troubles that, troubles that believers will experience, tribulation, distresses, persecutions, famine, nakedness, danger and the sword, he exalts there in Romans 8.37, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So take comfort, draw strength and inspiration from David's assurance of victory. But if you don't know Christ this way, if you have not bent the knee to him, I implore you to do so. I pray that you would see your need for a saviour, to realise that your only hope for salvation is found in Christ. Otherwise there will be a day where you will hear the words spoken by David in verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of evil. But instead of being spoken by David, they will be both spoken by the greater son of David, Christ Jesus. And on that day of judgment, he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And then you will experience verses 1 to 7 for all eternity. Your soul will be greatly troubled. You will experience distress and weeping for all eternity. When we started, we looked at some of the possible reasons why David was suffering. Whether it was sin, sickness, or his enemies. There is one other reason, I think, that we will experience suffering. Though it's not directly in the text, I think it's applicable to us. I'm convinced of this. That every, everyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour has prayed a prayer something like, Please, Lord, make me law like Jesus. Conform me to the image of your Son. 
help me to grow. John Newton is best known as the the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. I don't think it's his best song. I believe his greatest song is called I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. It goes like this. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It's the same prayer that we pray, isn't it? I want to grow. I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus. It goes on. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. What happens when we pray this way? When we ask God to change us? So often we think it's going to be one way, and yet God does exactly the opposite. He works in a way that we don't even expect. And John Newton was saying, when this happened, it almost started to drive him to despair. He looked at the sinfulness of his own heart and rather than seek growth, it seemed he was more sinful than ever. It goes on in the hymn, it says, I hope that in some favoured hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Newton thought, I'm just going to get instant sanctification. Surely God will just zap me in one hour. I'm going to become a better Christian. I won't struggle with sin anymore. But that's not what happened. He goes on, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand it seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Far from striking him with instant sanctification, God seemed to drive him to see more and more of his own sin. And it seemed that God himself was working against him. Lord, why is this I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. Beloved, God loves us too much to leave us as we are. 
he is determined to conform us to the image of his own dear son. He will not crush us, but he will destroy our reliance on self and crush our pride. He will not break us, but he will break all our reliance on the things of the earth and anything which sees us seeking our joy in anything but God himself. This is the greatest answer to prayer, that we would love and cherish nothing but God himself. What's been our memory verse for the month? Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship. And sometimes God just needs to get a little bit of sandpaper out and just smooth off the fine edges. Just gently smooth us off. But there are times where he needs to get the chisel and the hammer and wield it in such a way to remove things in our life that don't need to be there and that are stopping us from enjoying him. But in those times, know this, that the hand who's holding the chisel and the hammer are loving hands. Elizabeth Elliot said, Our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God did not protect his own son and he will not necessarily protect us, not from anything it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiselling and purifying by fire will have to go into the process. End quote. So what about you this morning? Are you suffering? Are you going through times of sorrow? Do you feel yourself languishing under the weight of sorrow? Then David's plea for mercy speaks to you today as well. We all encounter situations that make us feel utterly hopeless, whether it's due to illness, grief, broken relationships, personal failures. But know that in these moments, we, like David, too, can cry out to God for mercy. And this cry for mercy, it's an act of humility, acknowledging that we cannot navigate life's challenges alone. It's an admission that we need something greater than ourselves and that something is God and his compassion and his grace. It's Reformation Sunday today. So I must tip my hat to Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this, I know not the way 
God leads me. But well do I know my guide. And we know that our guide, Jesus Christ, is good and kind, faithful and loving. And I can't tell you that your suffering will soon be over. But there is a promise in the Bible that tells us one day, one day, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more sorrow. No more pain anymore. So my prayer is that not if you experience suffering and sorrow, but when, because it is a path that every believer will tread at some point in their life. You may join in with the chorus, with the multitude of saints that have come before us, that this psalm will be your song. And this will comfort you in times of distress. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. A man of sorrows himself one who was acquainted with grief. Father, we thank you that we can come before you. You have not left us to our own devices. You have given us your word. You've given us prayer. You've given us the church. We know, Lord, that when we do suffer, You are there. Help us not to run from you in those times, but to run to you. Help us to cling to Christ. To see your perfect wisdom through those times. And even if that suffering is long and drawn out, Help us to know that there will be a day where it will end. But in the meantime, Father, help us to avail ourselves of your word, to be open and share with one another, to lean on Christ, but to lean on others as well. Through all these situations, Father, we just pray, Lord, that we can keep looking to you, that you will be glorified in our lives. So we thank you for our time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.